0: This is Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. This is Mark Linsenmeyer. For episode two here, I'm going to be talking to Fritz Beer, who currently leads Fritz Beer and the Crooked Beat in Asheville, North Carolina, but has a long history fronting great bands, And we're going to be talking through songs by his bands The Bishops from Alton, Illinois, which wrapped up in the mid-90s And then Austin, Texas's Punchy from 2001 And I'll say Texas is where I met him And his band poached my band's lead guitarist And then we'll jump to his more recent work with Crown Vic in the Washington, D.C. area I'm sure most of you have not heard of Fritz But I'd like this podcast to be not just about peering into the minds of celebrities But also engaging the careers of those who frankly should be celebrities Fritz is one of those really cool rock and roll front men with a punk pedigree. And I'll admit I envied his style during our time together in Austin. And in fact, in a fit of desperation, even auditioned to be his bass player at some point. Though I'm sure that would not have worked out because I'm way too egotistical to be a side guy. The song you're listening to now is Que Es Esto from Crown Vic's 2013 release, She's Got Demons. To hear more of Fritz's music, go to fritzbeermusic.com. To learn more about this podcast, go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. All right, I'm here with Fritz Beer. How you doing, Fritz? I'm good, Mark. Where are you calling in from? Calling
1: in from Asheville, North
0: Carolina. It seems like you've been in, what, like five different scenes promoting your bands over the years?
1: Yeah, I've just moved around a lot, kind of for different reasons, but it's not, it hasn't always been just for music, but sometimes it's been just a run to get away. But I typically have had pretty good luck wherever I'm at finding some people that want to play. I always seem to stumble across a good guitar player because
0: I'm not. Yes, that's sort of the essential thing. You, don't, you can replace the drummer at a moment's notice uh, and the bass player with not much more. But uh, yeah, the guitar that sort of makes the band. So we're going to be listening to songs from three different of your bands over the years. So we get to hear three different approaches there. The first one is a spray job. So this is from the Bishops, your Alton, Illinois band played around St. Louis a lot. What years around is this?
1: Early 90s and even, even late 80s. We were together for quite a while. We did a lot of touring, we would hit the East Coast and
0: Yeah, we were together for probably ten years. Okay. And so I saw you had two albums before this and then this River North Sessions. Was that actually like released as an album at the time or is that just sessions? Why it was sessions and it was it was supposed to be released. It was like the last thing we were working on. And it's the thing that we is our favorite.
1: You know, it's everybody in the group's one that we really wanted to get out. And we broke up before we put it out. <laughs> keeping a band together is tough in 10 years and you know and and bands at that level they're struggling you know so we're touring but we're out there sleeping in a van and putting out albums and stuff that uh we're not getting a whole lot of support for so everything we do is all doing it ourselves it just get a little bit burnt unfortunately we just got too burnt before that last one came out because we feel like it's the best one we did now we have subsequently sort of put it out and it's available
0: yeah i should say all this stuff is on fritzbeermusic.com so the first tune here is Spray Job. Let's play it.
2: Another good old-fashioned Of the famous Middle Eastern and spray job This crazy chew boy pulls up to Palestine, lets him some tie bag of snakes, some wine. I'll never pretend.
0: So I was familiar with that tune because I actually learned that when I auditioned for your Austin band, Punchy, on bass because you'd already drafted in the uh, lead guitar player, Errol Siegel, from my band the first years in uh, 96, 97. I was oh, the down there. The Fake Johnson. Yes, the Fake Johnson Trio. So you had just started Punchy, which was just you and Daniel Bull, your friend from high school, right? Um, yeah. If I remember Errol saying, so originally he jammed with you and then our bass player jammed. So Daniel had his own band at the same time, too. Like you weren't, it seems like you're not in favor of the dual singer songwriter thing. Is that, does that seem accurate? Yeah, because I just wanted to do it myself. No, no, it's certainly simple that way. If you put out as many songs as you do, then for business reasons to split that up can be more trouble than it's worth. But so, yeah, this is the version that I had heard. I didn't know that it was the Bishops. I didn't know anything about this band. I've enjoyed over the past couple of weeks going back into your back catalog, and I got all three of the albums from this band and your EP as well. And yeah, this, yeah, was, this is I one of the, this is a song that still goes through my head now. I've just found periodically, like that uh, is one of the reasons why I thought of you as one of the first people when I was looking to do this podcast. So it's pretty straight ahead. I, it seems like the arrangement, maybe even simpler, less dissonant, more straight ahead in terms of just controlling the bassist and the drummer, at least. And really the lead guitarist, <laughs> too, than on the previous albums either. Was that consciously where you were going with this record? Or is that just the ethic of the band overall? Yeah, it's kind of where we were going with it. Because we listened to our... Uh, we just got too hung up, I think, in doing
1: stuff that was uh, a little bit more complicated. You know, we were pretty big Soul Asylum fans at the time. And like their album Hang Time. You know, mm-hmm. it's like my favorite album of Soul Asylum, and it's a complicated album. I mean, there's a pretty straight-ahead rock band, most people would say, but if you listen to that album, the arrangements are pretty complicated. And so we were kind of thinking along those terms for a while, but after a while, we were like, you know, no, we got to dumb this down. We do need to simplify this. So we did make a conscious effort to go, no, oh, let's not just, we don't need all these stops and breaks and, and changes and stuff, you know? We used to call it knuckle-dragging. If your knuckles aren't dragging, you're walking too upright.
0: This stuff's got to be knuckle dragger stuff. <laughs> And it got road tested quite a bit, right? I mean, you've, this is how long had you been playing this before this recording?
1: Well, we used to play, you know, recording's difficult. So in the sense of a band like us, playing on the road is where you get your money to record your album. <laughs> right. So you end up playing all these gigs and playing all your new songs and stuff. So by the time you get to the studio, you've actually been working this stuff pretty hard. We would go in the studio and it would cut down our costs, for one thing, because we already knew the arrangement we wanted by now. So yeah, these songs got tested. And we liked that River North Sessions because it was just simpler stuff. A little bit more straight ahead.
0: And and most of it's just a lot simpler. It's it's three chord stuff without many changes.
1: I mean, how long did it take you to learn Spray Job that time?
0: (laughs) Not too long, but it has a surprising number. So the verse here is the most memorable part. The verse is not supposed to be the most memorable part. I refer to it as a refrain <laughs> when it's the thing, the spray job part. Like, that's not the chorus. No, that's just the part that comes out first and that has different lyrics every time. So therefore, it is a verse, even though like it's the it's part the that you want to sing it. along with sort of initially. Yeah. And then it's got this whole truth comes out of the barrel of a gun, which is a great anthemic tagline. But it's the pre-chorus. That's not the chorus either. It's not even the chorus, right? <laughs> Maybe it's more complicated than I thought. Well, and then you get to the actual chorus, but there are elements throughout this that make me think that you are trying to just really emphasize simplicity, just the beginning of the song. Yeah, well, it's G, C, and D. Yeah, right. And, and they, like little E minor gets thrown in there, but... The bass comes in at the beginning, it's just straight eights, and then the drums come in... You know, we're just layering. We're just doing one piece on top of another. Just the simplest backbeat. (laughs) And then it surprises you a little bit by the big thing on... Well, first of all, I mean, your vocal line is a full two measures just to get into it. So it's like the complexity here is all seems to be in the lyrics. You're a big Clash fan, right? Yeah. Is that where this flavor of social commentary comes from? This sort of oblique?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does. It definitely... I mean, I'm a huge Clash fan and that kind of stuff. I like to do it. And seeing the story in a paper about the two guys that, you know, it was a real story. They go into a Catholic pub, these two Protestant guys, and they go into a Catholic pub and they swing open their coats, kind of, you know, Keanu Reeves style, and they start shooting the place up. So it was a real news story, right? Yeah. So then there were a couple more, and so I just took those vignettes that were actual news stories, like the Jewish guy that went into the, the mosque and shot the place up.
0: He pulls up to Palestine, like the whole of Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he pulls up to Palestine. <laughs> figuratively so that was the
1: whole idea that every one of those is a little vignette there's three little stories in there and then they all kick back to the um, you know you solved it all with another spray job didn't you
0: some nice elvis costello-y sarcasm there yeah so the first and the third one were clear enough to me you know it's just straight ahead this is a terrorist activity what you never see a woman play machine gun patty hearst looks stupid in a beret where did the introducing fashion into this what <laughs> where did that come from
1: well, I thought I always thought that that photo of Patty Hearst at the bank with the beret on, with the machine gun. I always just thought that was just the most ridiculous thing I'd ever seen. And girls don't play with guns, really. They're not brought up that way. Boys are brought up to, you know, you get your guns and stuff, your toy guns when you're a kid growing up, and so that's pretty pervasive in this society. But girls don't do that. So that was just kind of having fun there too, you know. And the whole Patty Hearst story, like to me, was always kind of funny because she what she did join, but then she said no. I wasn't, I was being forced to do this. And yet here's the picture of her. Like everybody brought the picture of her in the bank with the the machine gun, (laughs) ready to go.
0: Just this sort of humor-based approach to, I guess I'll still call it social commentary. I mean, it's things that happen that you're commenting on. So it's social commentary, but it's obviously not designed what the message is, terrorism is bad. Like people need to hear your song to say, I'm going to change the world and be less terrorist. Like it's not like 60s social commentary trying to force a social change. It's something more just playful and almost riffing on the history of, you know, the fact that there have been bands like The Clash and, you know, that were more, I don't know, am I demeaning your serious political ambition here? No, no,
1: I mean, it's supposed to be kind of absurd and it makes you laugh and everything and it makes you see the absurdity of that. I think it's great. Because I feel like that is absurd. you know that. Okay, this is your option. I'm going to pick up a machine gun, and I'm going to spray as many people as I can. Like, how does someone get to that state? And how does someone think that that does anything? So I just thought it was absurd, and it kind of came pretty easily.
0: So it was kind of fun. I'll never pretend that I understand pulled him apart with their own godless hands. I wasn't exactly sure what was with that line. When that guy
1: shot up the mosque, yes. uh, the crowd turned on him and grabbed him and killed him with their bare hands. Okay. Like, he killed a lot of people, and he had weapons, but as soon as they started clicking, then they jumped him, and then they killed him with their bare
0: hands. This is all, of course, pre-September 11th. Is there any change in how this song gets received or something in a different climate toward uh, terrorist violence that we have now?
1: Well, we don't play it that much anymore. The group that I'm with now is like, you know, we're sort of this acoustic group, and we're playing with the Cajon. And right. sometimes those really straight beats with the cajon don't work as well. You know, you need something a little bit more rhythmically. I mean, he, he does. He has a kick pedal on his cajon, our drummer. So he can do a real straight beat. and It sounds like if you weren't looking, you'd almost think there was a drum kit in the room, just a low sure. volume kit. But still, some of those straight beats like that don't come off as well. Now, I was up in, in Alton a month ago, and I did a show with my old guitar player. Just a, him and I did a duo show. And it was right after
0: the, the French shootings. And so he's like, well, we gotta play Spray job." Yeah. So we have enough of this kind of terrorism still out there to Yeah. It on. comes back around and you know. It's a
1: timeless little piece I'd like to think I wrote.
0: <laughs> well, the simplicity I think again goes with the fact that this was more of a big old rock band that this is a mistake I think I make sometimes. When I write songs, I think about them in terms of, you know, what bass riff am I gonna play here is how does it sound in the room to me right now as I'm writing it? as opposed to how's it going to sound in a club where you touch the kick drum or you touch the bass and this giant noise comes out. Maybe I'm just not one of those guys who, you know, I mostly write an acoustic. I don't play a very loud electric guitar amp when I do that. Even if I'm playing a distorted sound, even if I'm doing a Bob Mould thing, like I still play it pretty quietly. <laughs> I, I'm not, but when you're moving this heavy machinery around, just having things that are precise that you don't have a lot of wheely, wheely, wheely going in there, uh, much less on the bass or uh, you know drummers that listen to too much Rush, which I've had a, a lot of experience. <laughs> Have you had trouble? Now, now, speaking of that, our drummer plays on a cajon,
1: right? But he put a kick pedal on it and he has a hex stick, so like I said, he can get it to sound like, like a kid. And the face of it, as you move down the face, the tones change as you hit down the face of that. So you, it sounds like Tom Roll. So the other day just goofing around in practice, someone was doing like the uh, Temples of Syrinx. <laughs> Riff, And he did the fill and the roll on the cajon. I'm like, Jesus. So we do some of that kind of stuff, you know, because it does kind of work in some ways. But in Asheville, where we're playing now, it's a real acoustic scene. And the drummer that I know, I've known him for years. When I moved here and he said, we decided we were going to do this style with the cajon and everything. He said, look, I brought my kid in from the car on the street. and People start going, oh, brother, and start leaving (laughs) I haven't even played it yet, just bringing it in. So yeah, when you start piling up the equipment, things can get loud pretty quick, and a drum kit can only be so soft, really, anyway. Sure. So right now, that's kind of what we're doing,
0: is uh, we're looking at that, and we're writing like that, too. Kind of like you were saying, we're writing with what we're playing in mind. So just a little more about the arrangements of this. I got the impression that you were kind of a laid-back, hands-off band leader, but in this band, had you just played with them enough so that the drummer was not going to overplay, and you didn't have to, say, do less, or... I like to bring in a song. Like I usually write on acoustic guitar too. And I like
1: to bring in a song and go, all right, here it is. I can sit here and play this song by myself. And you guys can accompany me. What are you going to do? I mean, there have been times when I've said, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm thinking at all. But for the most part, I like to let them just
0: do it. And I feel like I've been kind of lucky. The guys that I play seem to have always found the feel for the most part. Well, so let's look at the next era here, getting to the next song. So this is Punchy, the band that you had in Austin. This is a, a little after I left Austin, but I'd heard a number of your gigs. I don't know if I heard this song. This seemed like a, this was written pretty late in the process. A lot of those Punchy songs were Bishop's things redone. Or, But when did this Try Something New song come up? Was that written around that time?
1: Yeah, it was me and Errol mainly who would work on stuff. And then when our bass player got sick, Daniel. Well, you know, I mean,
0: you know Lee too. Yes, so Daniel, the sick bass player, was replaced with Lee, who also got sick, and so then you got a new guy just for this recording, or he was on the road with you a little before this? Yeah,
1: he was on the road with us, too. He played with us for quite a while. He was a very malleable guy. Errol liked him because he would just kind of do what Errol said.
0: (laughs) You know Errol. Yes, so, which is an interesting sort of dynamic. Well, let's play the song first, and looking at the CD, I, I see it actually says, you know, songs by Fritz Beer, arranged by Errol Siegel, which... Mm-hmm. The fact that he got that in there where usually like of course the band arranges things, but you don't bother to the put, guy. there's no financial thing or credit, you know, specifically attached to that.
1: Errol and I did have a financial co-writing situation. Well, ah. I did. So he got that credit like that, but also he's earned some royalty money from those. Errol was important. He did a lot of really cool stuff in the studio, like that would bring in a bare bones song, right? But he would add so much to it that I'm like, look, that is worthy of Some credit, you know, the song hasn't changed much, but you're adding these embellishments and stuff to it. And he was great in the studio at that kind of thing. And all these little tasty licks and stuff, to me made a lot of that stuff. So I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Are you willing to join ASCAP? And he's like, yeah.
0: Right. So for the first sort of mini album that you guys put out, Punchy 1999, you redid Spray Job, I saw for that, which is a fairly similar one. It's not too over arranged. But then for this Just My Type album, Seems like you spent quite a bit more time in the studio and, well, folks can hear at the end of this song, in particular, the arrangement, it's flowers. There's extra things that would never be played live. Yeah, well,
1: that's Errol and he's got, like, I've got three really great little licks I want to get in there and I'm like, those are fantastic. Yeah, do them. <laughs>
2: Try acting like a human, try acting like a human for you. the human try something
0: What is this about? Is it talking to yourself? Is it talking to a former bandmate? I was thinking, is it a girlfriend? Who? What's going on here? Probably more like a
1: girlfriend. But yeah, talking to myself too. You know, it's one of those self-help things where you're just trying to be a better person and you, and you make the promise to be better and not do mean things, not do some evil bad things that, well, I was going to say we all do, but I don't know that. I did. I've been pretty hard on some people. So it was kind of turning over a new leaf kind of thing. Just trying to
0: say it in a different way, possible. Well, but even though it's kind of this, by contrast, a warm, fuzzy thing, maybe different from some of the meaner punk songs that you'd written in the past, you're still doing it in second person as if you're talking to somebody and being hard on them. So you still get to be the punk bastard, even though it has this, <laughs> this one moment of, I make this promise, and then it you know goes back into it. Like Spray Job, we've got, first of all, I mean, the intro here, you start with Spray Job. We had a bridge that kind of added the mighty dissonance, went down to the diminished relative minor, right? You're in G and you go down to E minor, uh, flatted fifth thing. In this tune, you just start right off with that. Let's just start, get the dissonance out there, which it seems like that was a a thing that, unless that was just an aerial addition, that seems like that was something from your punk past, that some of your other Bishop's albums, like the whole thing would be built around a riff like that. I just wanted to do that dissonant thing in the front of it. You know, later on when we played that, we, we didn't even do that. We'd
1: just go right into the song and we skip that part. Huh. But I kind of wanted to do that just as a shock effect kind of thing. And also just to add that dissonance out there, okay? Because there's this bad thing that's going on here. But
0: we're going to try to make it better. And then you've got this little arrangement thing. I mean, I guess by this time, so in Punchy, you started playing electric rhythm. But then at some point, a year or two in, you just, when Errol was obviously filling up the electric space just fine. Then you switched over to acoustic strumma strumma, right? Pretty much. Yeah, because when we recorded that album, we didn't really use... There's there's acoustic
1: guitar on there. It's fairly buried. But I played a lot of electric guitars on there. Okay. So when we were kind of done with that, we were like, well, this is pretty much an electric album. And so I started playing electric live. Nothing too big, just a a Telecaster and a, a small... Two ten combo kind of thing.
0: Okay, so you went back to Electric at this point, because I had seen you doing both, you know, this is more 1999 when the first album was coming out there. And I know that even wasn't something Errol was happy about, (laughs) necessarily, that you switched to just playing acoustic. But it obviously made a lot more space in the band. And, you know, in this song, in particular, you get the strumming throughout. And... I like that it's highlighted in that first verse, that you've got just the first half of it is from the dissonance to the just you and your acoustic, and then the whole thing opens up into what it is for the rest of the time, which I guess is acoustic and electric running through the whole thing, right?
1: Yeah, it's acoustic and electric running through there, but there's a bunch of electric guitars in there, too. I mean, it's just full of guitars. (laughs) There's probably four guitars going on and the acoustic. It's pretty thick. And then, of course, there's a double lead solo in there with the feedback and the...
0: Yeah, yeah. Again, we have, like Spray Job, we've got the big part, the refrain, that the verse is probably the catchiest part, whereas the chorus is, by comparison, a little more restrained, this thing that's going up, the chord progression is going up. Yeah, and- it, just,
1: it drops off and bounces along, that the chorus does, yeah. You know, that's a reaction to a lot of this that 90s stuff where everybody was doing the Nirvana thing, where it's like a, a very low verse. Sure. Very sparse verse. And then a giant chorus. So there's a little bit of reaction to that. It's like, let's bring the chorus down and have it rumble
0: and open the verse up to open chords. And then instead of a traditional guitar solo, yeah, it goes through something that it's the same chorus chords, but it's a totally different feel with those layers of weird harmonics, something guitar. Uh, And then another eight measures where you go halftime, where it kind of opens up, but it's not quite a verse again. And then... You can get to the last verse, which is twice as long. You bring up the glass menagerie. I had, this is the first time I thought of that Tennessee Williams play since I had to read it in high school. I had to look up, what was with the glass menagerie? What? Oh yeah, the glass menagerie. (laughs) Was that that an intentional, there's no reason you would use that phrase if it was not a reference. It is a reference to that, but it's not necessarily that
1: thought out or that meaningful, but it is a reference to that.
0: Yes, well, it's- That's the only uh, place I've ever heard of it. I'll sweep up all the pieces of your glass menagerie and take my medication when your parents- come vacation. Yeah. So just in general, let's be less fucked up, which is Yeah, let's, What <laughs> the the only thing I remembered from the play The Glass Menagerie is like these people are just kind of fucked up and it's <laughs> pathetic and that's what I guess it's a portrait of real life. It's a uh... try to be less fucked up
1: and take my medication, you know, and not I, I don't take medication, but I've known people that do and they always stop for whatever reason and they're always told not to stop. Don't stop, you need to take this. And they always stop.
0: And then they go sideways. The reason I thought some of it was aimed at another person is because you got this contrast in the second verse. You know, you were away for a while. You finally resurfaced a cold electric message. In other words, the punk thing. But I will, by contrast, make a sweeter sound. I'll dumb the language down. (laughs) Well, was this still talking to yourself or was there something else in mind here? I mean, I think it is talking to myself, but it's also talking
1: to, like I said, it's some other people that I might have been less than good to. It's a little combination. It goes back and forth. I don't know how you feel about this. Sometimes when you write this stuff, the I, 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 you know, you don't, and I'll pay too much attention to that. Is it me? Is it you? I'll do this or you need to do this. You know, I, I don't know if I was thinking about that that hard, but I mean, the, the idea is that I'm going to try to be a better person really just, and, you uh, know, <laughs> if you can say it by saying I'll sweep up your glass menagerie, and take my medication when your parents come vacation. If you can say it in those ways, that's kind of fun, I think.
0: Well, and right after that, open up the diary and expose some, but not of all. But not of all.
1: It can only go so far in this uh, self-improvement thing.
0: Well, and it seems like it's a reflection, you know, just like you're talking about how you're changing musical styles, that it's kind of playing with the whole rock star badass. How do those things relate in terms of, Even if you're singing about fear and trembling or weakness or something, it's still, like, done in a a way that, as a front man, seemed cooler than what I was doing. Let me put it that way, in terms of just, like, this (laughs) rock star, you know, it's which I don't know if it's just playing in the the mode of your idols and this is something that was established. You know, there's nothing whiny. Even when you're whining, I don't hear... (laughs) The whole point of rock and roll is that you can express stuff, but you could still, you know, have a chick swoon at you while you're doing it or something. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point, because there are people that I like, like
1: Elvis Costello. I'm a huge fan of Elvis Costello. Was I mean, I just, yeah. you know, his first album, I destroyed on my turntable from Repetitive Play. And he does a lot of whining, but he doesn't sound like it. I, you know, I wouldn't say that The Clash did, but later on, Joe Strummer has albums. I don't know if you've ever heard of any of his stuff. Sure. Oh, Scalaros. yeah. Yeah, I love that stuff. And uh, he gets a little bit more in touch with himself on a lot of those things, but he always still comes off cool, you know? <laughs> he doesn't come off whiny and he's not bitching too much. And
0: uh, I don't know, guys like that, guys like Warren Zevon. Well, and I think it's easier when you have to then perform this stuff that I'm a little more enamored of the Sid Barrett, like just completely, at least sometimes, completely let go and expose yourself and write lyrics that then later kind of embarrass me but there's something appealing to them and so i at least record them and i'm not sure though if i want to then go play this a hundred times in front of audiences uh yeah i could see that i mean there have been some times when
1: i've played some stuff and went "Mm, i'm not too open really i get a lot more out of my own stuff in songs and stuff than i do talking to people i don't tell my girlfriend a whole lot
0: well, and I don't remember us having a whole conversation in Austin at any point. Maybe it just never came out <laughs> or we You were always on the stage or I was on the stage or something. But i uh, <laughs> um, It's not easy to meet new people. So I could probably meet new people like this. This might work for me. <laughs> I look at music as a... I approach as a fan not as I'm going to dismiss this and not dismiss that. I'm kind of eager to be spoken to. If music is supposed to be a way of communicating, then... You know, it seems to be worth my time if I can make the time, but there's what, what the hell else do you have to do to sort of bore into this stuff and try to figure, I certainly wouldn't have sat down and like counted out the verses of these songs on my own, but I'm glad that doing this with you has forced me to kind of assess. Stuff? No, I, I was going to say assess, but yes, just more surrender myself to the Fritz beer majesty uh, through the ages here. Through the- <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of let's get into the third song. <laughs> which maybe you don't want to surrender yourself to the third song here. So the one in this slot, which David Lowry sort of cheated on and uh, didn't give me something that followed this, but it's supposed to be the fail. It's supposed to be the thing that we can learn from because maybe you wouldn't quite do it this way in the future. So this is the one you picked up, this uh, When I Say Jump, which is the first time we're getting to hear uh, Crown Vic, your more recent band. So you left Austin, what, 2002? somewhere around there and then Errol was at least telling me that you were kind of incommunicado doing you know in a family like that took a while for this to get going I see it was 2008 before the first Crown Vic recordings get out and then so 2008 Demons Get Driven and this one though is from the 2013 She's Got Demons What? first of all why the similarity in album titles is that not confusing well Dreams Get Driven Dreams Get, just one's dreams get Driven Dreams Get Driven but the covers
1: are absolutely similar <laughs> a painter that we know in Fredericksburg and we all love his stuff. If you look at the covers of this stuff and see why these chicks with guns counting money, the girl with the gun stuff and the gun into her jeans. I mean, these paintings are, you know, they're just fun. Who's, who's the artist again? His name is Bill
0: Harris. So, all right. So when I say jump, do you have any, any brief words of introduction before we play it or should we just let him? Well, I mean, I, I was trying to come up with a fail song for your request and this one, I don't know.
1: It's just one of those ones that sometimes you crank some stuff out and it's just you think it's cool. And, and it's really just a cliche. It's a, it's a gigantic cliche. And then some girls that heard it kind of came down on me about it. They took it the wrong way. And so I called a little flag for it. <laughs> OK, could have been a mistake. I don't know. But I do love what goes on musically in this thing. Yeah. And these phase guitars and the, all the stuff in there that's you know the wah guitar and the phase stuff. Who's the lead player on this? His name's Tim Bray. Is he on both the albums with you throughout? Yeah, he's on both those. She's Got Demons and Dreams Get Driven. He's a guitar. He's a great guitar player.
2: Say hi When you're in this state All you respond to is strong Verbal commands When I'm in this state too All that I want you is putty In my hand. No! Oh.
0: it's funny to me that you go to Texas, you make Punchy, which is founded on a lot of these songs that you wrote in the Midwest, and yet some of the reviews of you in Texas is like, this is a great Texas rock. Uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing right. particularly Texas. Errol's not from Texas. You're not from Texas. Then you go to uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and you find this... <laughs> is it just the lead player that you ran into, or this was just a direction you were heading throughout, that to be more in the country rock, what I'm not Well, I've always liked that stuff, so Punchy would do
1: some of that stuff, but we weren't writing those kind of things, really, at the time. So, I mean, it was there. I just hadn't really done much with it on my own songs. We used to cover stuff like that, so we were kind of heading that way. And I think that that label that we were on wanted to sort of peg us as that. And they also they kind of got a little bit of that from us live. I don't think that the record sounds very... I don't know what Texas is, though. I mean, it's... I mean... What do you think
0: of when you talk about Texas music? I mean, there's sort of a country blues thing. Right. Well, it's flashy blues guitar, which is actually so after Errol left my band, it morphed into I found a guy, Jamie Nichols down there that was extremely Texan. (laughs) And like, okay, this is a move that now we can sell ourselves more. Like, so added more of the funk, added more of the becoming a genre band as opposed to just a power pop or roots rock or something band. So, I, you know, there's definitely a huge appeal. Well, having anybody, even if they're not going to listen to your songs, or, you know, all songs work better if you hear them multiple times. And unless you have people coming back to your gigs, then. If you're playing original music, you know, it's good to the extent that it is straight ahead or has familiar elements, has just straight backbeat. You know, if you're playing really wild music, that's even harder to get into unless the crowd is there to like, I want to hear some psychedelic art music. Like if that's what they want, but then sort of the more straight ahead, the better. But also just having a really good instrumentalist, like even if they have never heard you before, they can go, wow, that's a solo. That guy can play. And that'll hook them. For the rest of it, hopefully. That's right. Like We do that stuff when we try to pick out
1: covers. We want to do things we like, but we also want to do things that kind of people know. But if it's something people, we think that they don't know, we don't make sure it's catchy that you know, you can hear it live for the first time. You don't know it, but it still will get you. It'll still hook you in. Same thing then with your own songs. If you've got a few that'll hook people in of your own original things, then yeah, they'll sit and listen to it. So I don't know yeah you know, I've never been too far out there I don't think as far as Art Rock
0: whatever you know I do love a hook so if it's a catchy chorus I'm and I can find it I'm all over it but just by contrast to Spray Job, the arrangement is so much, I was going to say less tasteful, but just more expansive. Every single line has the lead guitar answering it in some way and then just sort of waiting for you to stop singing so it can break out and dance around a little bit. It's just a much more flashy thing. Is that just who you happen to be playing with or that's like a conscious change in your tastes over time?
1: I don't know. I mean, some of that might just be a, like a writing element. Like sometimes you probably know this. The first thing that happens is you've got a, a little melody riff line. Sure. It's the first thing that comes out of your pet. Okay. And so it's that opening line, like in Spray Job. But that just worked out. So when you, you know, when you keep on writing that song, that's that f- opening line and it works coming right out of the gate. So how do you build the rest of your song around that? Well, that's my first line. So now my subsequent lines are going to be like a little out of place or a little different. So that's going to be the first opening for each verse, right? And then the follow up verses change. That's to me is the hook line, the hook melody line.
0: That na 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 You know? So for this song, is the opening riff just the When I Say Jump or is it When I Say Jump? Like, was the lead guitar thing, was that him answering you or was that part of the conception?
1: Well, again, a lot of that stuff is this guy's a very good guitar player and also very tasty. And so he knows not to step on stuff, but he also likes to be busy sometimes. So if he's got room to throw a little flourish in there, he'll just do it. This is something I don't think we spent a whole lot of time on, you know, on this one. It's kind of like, yeah, here's this song. And I don't know. What do you think? Seems, well,
0: I'll just seems i will just go ahead.
1: Hit the button. Let me play along with it a few times.
0: So So we brought up the rock badass sort of persona of not exposing too much and kind of being mean some of the time and how that got subverted a little in in the last song we talked about. So in this one, is this what you were getting flack about that? It just seems like, well, you're just an asshole. This is what, why? (laughs) Yeah, this guy's an asshole. When I say jump, you better say how high? You're talking to your girlfriend like that? Like what, what What were you, th- what actually inspired right. this? Is that a wrong interpretation? No, no, no. It's it's, it's kind of funny, but I, I wouldn't say that this is too personal. You know, this is like one of those
1: things where it's just like a line and then you kind of run with it. So is that a character? It's like a character. Yeah. It's like somebody who's like that. Okay. When I say I love you, you better say it twice. When I say jump, you better say how high, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's an attitude there. I wouldn't say it's a self portrait kind of thing. I would say it's just more of like a character sketch, which is, again, why I think it's
0: a little bit of a fail song because it's like, eh, it just doesn't mean a whole lot, you know? So David Lowry that we just had on, I mean, he writes almost only character sketches at this point, but they tend to be like over the top, that I lost an eye in Mexico, I lost two teeth, well, I don't know. People see me coming and they move to the other side of the road. Like, you set that up as your first line of your song— You're probably not talking about yourself like that. (laughs) You're pretty clear, unless
1: unless you're actually missing those two (laughs) T.
0: Whereas with this, who knows what the relation? But I see what you're saying. As with the last song, like, is it me? Is it you? Does it matter? It's a matter of that you're expressing a mood, and you're using these things. So the mood in here is being a badass in a sort of a cliche country way, (laughs) you
1: know? Yeah, I mean that's it. Like I said, it's not too personal. Although maybe it's a look backwards, you know. Maybe it's like, yeah, I could have been this guy. I don't think I'm this guy now, but maybe I was
0: at one point. So maybe it's just a sketch like that. When you're in this state, all you respond to is strong verbal commands. I'm getting too old, too old to rely on subtle unfolding plans.
1: <laughs> I don't like that line.
0: <laughs> so what is the state? I don't want to belabor something that makes it less fun to listen to, but what is <laughs>
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just part of the whole theme.
0: When I say jump, you say how high. All right. That's
1: the whole (laughs) thing. The whole cliche in a nutshell is what all those lines (laughs) are back to. So when you're in this state, all I can do is speak to you like harshly and rough and tell you what to do.
0: So is the thing you're playing off here, the stance is taken in a lot of songs or is it just like these are a person you're imagining? Like it almost seems like, okay, now I'm playing a country song and I'm not a country, you know, I'm not from the backwoods. And so when I play country songs... They're fairly offensive to people who actually really are into country music. And David Lowry was accused of the same thing because, yeah. you know, then he would play a country song and like make the narrator a total hick or something. You're kind of echoing back the playing it in that style. And for me, it's the same thing. If I play yeah. like a, a, you know, feel like making love kind of song, then like I will write dumb lyrics because I'm putting myself in the mode It's not a critique of the guys that wrote that Feel Like Making Love song and saying they're a bunch of meatheads, but it's how I feel when I'm putting on that hat. Well, that's a great point. I mean, you might have
1: nailed it there because I was kind of thinking a little bit of that outlaw sort of absurd country stuff, maybe a little Mojo Nixon, a a little tongue in cheek. Sure. I don't think to be taken too seriously, but again it's one of those things where you, you go into something like that and you go, okay, I got this attitude and here's the line and I'm and Oh, and it's a cliche and I'm going to, but I'm going to run with it anyway. And you build it from there and then it came out. Okay. Everybody kind of picked it up, learned it. We was ready to go. So we tracked it and recorded it. And I really do like all that guitar
0: stuff in there. <laughs> so I'm like, well, let's keep it. Well, and you got the little, when there's the stop a few times and it, it was, it, it's spoons or something. What little percussion thing is that, that fills up the spaces? It sounded like spoons to me. <laughs>
1: Oh, I think it's these things.
0: Is it the claves? What? Oh, more cowbell, of
1: course. I got these at somebody's wedding or something.
0: <laughs> Mini cowbells. Nice. It sounds
1: like a cowbell, but yeah, they kind of clomp along in there, right?
0: A sheep bell. Okay. Something small. You're a sheep <laughs> bell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so we're just about done here. We're going to just introduce the last song and we'll let it play and I'll have a few closing remarks. So, the one that we're just leaving people with, which is not a fail, is I'm on a leash. So, this is on the first Crown Vic record, Dreams Get Driven, 2008. And this has very much to me the same kind of thing that Spray Job does in terms of, yes, now there's rock. This is good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's got the same sort of snide thing, but it's I'm on a leash. At least it's long, but it may be attached to where I belong. It seems like it's a tender little thing <laughs> stuffed in there. Right.
1: Well, I used to introduce that song and say, hey, this is a song that goes out to my dog. I want to send this out to my dogs. <laughs> or wait, or is it to my girlfriend? <laughs> so I'd introduce it like that, just, just for fun. But that is the idea, is using the dog metaphors to describe you know, your relationship. The one thing I like about it, I like songs that repeat. Like I like repeating lines, you know? Sure. Um, they hook me in. I feel like they're catchy.
0: I felt like this one worked. It's the sort of same very marginal pointy finger stab at social commentary that it's not just... Me who's on a leash, it's you're on a leash, but you They're don't know.
1: You you uh, you suckers right. out there. You think- it might apply. There might be somebody out there to listen to that listens to I like this song, but I'm not I'm not on a leash, no. <laughs> you are because you keep saying it over and over. You've gotta serve somebody.
0: <laughs> oh and- yeah. Yeah, right. To quote Bob Dylan. That's, yeah. Well, Fritz, thanks for joining me. Uh, it was really great catching up with you and hearing so much of your stuff. And I uh, wish you a lot of success. Hope folks go to fritzbeermusic.com and be what? You're on Spotify. You have to, unfortunately, it's not under one place. You got to look up Crown Vic. You got to look up, well, Punchy's not up there yet. Are you going to post any more of this stuff in the... No, if
1: you um, if you go to fritzbeermusic.com, there's Crown Vic, Punchy. Yes. And Avon Ladies. That stuff's there. All right. Well, have a good one.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.
2: but at least, at least it's long. Yeah, it's long. I'm on a leash, I'm on a leash, I'm on a leash, but at least, at least it's long. But at least, at least there's so wrong And it may be a for where I belong Try helping, try heaving Always seems like you're leaving Looking at the road between us Lie back and wait for someone to come into your breeze And I come when I'm called, might as well
0: Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. My plan here going forward is to mix up, reaching out to my various musical idols, as with David Lowry, building some off the network of people I actually associated with. And in fact, the first thing I ask all the guests is who else would you recommend I do this with? So I'm trying to build those networks out. But I hope this episode proves to you listeners who may be musicians yourselves, that if you reach out to me, it's very possible you may find yourself, given the Nakedly Examined Music Treatment. Now, the way I'm going to prevent myself from getting completely flooded with responses that I don't have time to evaluate is in the next couple of weeks, I'll be launching something on nakedlyexaminedmusic.com called a song self-exam. And I would like to invite every single musician who's listening to this to submit one of these song self-exams. Here's how it works. This would be a YouTube video. Just use your webcam or your iPhone cam or whatever to film yourself briefly introducing one of your songs. Then in that video, insert the entirety of that song recording. I don't care what's visually happening during it. Have a picture of the album cover, whatever you want. After the song is over, I want you to talk for three to five minutes in the way that you just heard us do here. Say something about why you wrote the song, why you wrote it that way. You could emphasize where you were in your career when you wrote it, what your influences were, some of the music theory or recording techniques that went into it, really whatever you want to emphasize. Just record one of those, upload it to your own YouTube channel, send me the link, and I will post all the submissions... You know, unless there's just seriously something wrong with it. To the nakedlyexaminedmusic.com website. All right, looking forward. I recorded this interview with Fritz at the beginning of January. It's now almost the end of January. I recorded episodes four and five last week. Got six coming up here. I'm very excited about our next guest. On episode three, you're going to hear Kevin Godley. Now, you may not know that name. I didn't know that name, but he's a freaking legend. Not only was he one of these British invasion guys... In the early mid-70s, he was in this band, 10CC, that had some huge hits. And then he and his writing partner split off from that band to form Godly and Cream, which if you search those guys, if you're as old as I am, at least, if you were listening to radio in the early 80s, you'll say, oh, I okay, I know that song. But his biggest historical mark is that he's directed just about every damn cool music video from the early 80s, mid-80s, even up to the present day. He's worked with U2, The Police, Peter Gabriel, Duran Duran. He did the video for... The Beatles, Real Love, many, many more. After that, I talked to a very interesting electronic musician named Gareth Mitchell. So if you think I spend too much time on these things talking about lyrics, most of the songs in that episode are instrumental, and I want to do more of that. So this is not just about pop rock. This is about jazz. This is about techno, contemporary classical, anything I can stomach immersing myself into for a week to prep for it. Now, last week, this podcast officially launched on iTunes. We got listed, I saw, in the new and noteworthy section. But of course, we're just starting. We're struggling to get an audience. This is really a crucial time. If you like what you heard here, please, please, if you are an iTunes user, go to the iTunes store, leave a five-star rating, maybe a nice review. Now, beyond that, I know there are only two episodes of this to listen to so far. If that whets your appetite for more, go to listen to my other podcast, The Partially Examined Life. That is a philosophy podcast, but we've done a half dozen episodes or so on the philosophy of art. And I, of course, always steer those discussions toward music. If you like this, you'll probably be entertained by that. I would love to get your comments on the show. Guests you'd like to hear here, things you think worked or didn't work about the format, the best place to leave that kind of feedback is go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. There is a blog post there for each of these episodes, and you can comment on that blog post, start a discussion, engage other listeners and me. You can also write to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And again, if you're a musician, try your hand at one of those song self-exams and send me the link. Doing that will not commit you to coming on the show, but it will get you some publicity. And I really want to build a network of smart musician listeners, the kind of musical support group that, frankly, I've never felt like I've gotten in any of the local scenes that I've been a member of, where everybody's just trying to out-cool everybody else, is all too quick to write each other off. I just think there's too much negativity, too much competition. That's just not what art is about for me. I know it's very hard in our busy lives to surrender yourself to a work of art to really listen closely to something. It's much easier just to listen to a bit of it and "Eh, I like it or no, I don't like it. So again, in addition to bringing on some of my famous artists, at least the ones who will return my emails, I'm going to search out stuff that's new to me to challenge me, to challenge you folks. It's not all going to be good-natured knuckle dragon like this episode, but I hope you'll open your ears, open your minds and join me on this ride. Thanks so much to Fritz Beer. And thank you listeners until next time. This is Mark Lintonmeyer or Mark Lint, if you want to look me up on Spotify or iTunes and hear the kind of stuff that I do. Signing off.